Your money or your life, says the outlaw in the old joke. When there is no answer, he prods the rich man with his gun and yells, Your money or your life, are you deaf? No, cries the rich man. I just can't decide. (laughs) It's funny, probably, because it's true. As much as we think we choose our life, there are times when we are torn between our wealth, our riches, or our life. It touches, this joke touches on two of the three biggest things we spend our lives thinking about, really, which money and death. There's a third. Anyone want to guess what the third is? (laughs) Sex. Someone said sex. So money, death, and sex. That's a great sermon title. I promise sometime I'll preach a sermon. (laughs) But those three things are really the big, often taboo realities of our lives. We spend a lot of time and energy on those three. Today, the focus and the theme for October is money. And what better place than our faith community to unpack this topic? What better place than a church where our religious ideals and values can inform our work lives and our financial lives? I realize money may feel like and often is an intensely personal topic But it's also everywhere we look with bailouts and bonuses and bankruptcies and national debt, personal debt, foreclosures, one-day-only sales, no down payment needed, $50 bonus for signing up for a checking account. And if we have kids, they are probably asking about and asking for money all the time. Everywhere we look, it's money, money, money. TV, who wants to be a millionaire in a dozen other shows where if you endure some of the worst things possible, you win some money. (laughs) We struggle with money. We want money. And we don't even really understand what it is. Money, as the authors of Your Money or Your Life write, money governs our lives as much or more than any other factor. I want to repeat this so you can decide if it's true in your life or not. Money governs our lives as much or more than any other factor. Maybe it shouldn't. We know that money can't buy happiness. And as actor and California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger confirms, money doesn't make you happy. I now have 50 million, but I was just as happy when I had 48 million. (laughs) Okay, Arnold, I'll take the two million. (laughs) It's not very eloquently stated, but he's simply pointing out the truth that once our basic needs have been met, our happiness does not increase with more money. And as an aside, social scientists and others have indicated that happiness does increase with community involvement or being involved in a faith community. So you all should be happier on average perhaps than, than other people. We've also heard that the best things in life are free. And yet our actions, and I include myself in this, my actions often tell a different story. As your money or your life asks us, what do we do when we feel depressed or are lonely or when we feel unloved? Well, we often buy something to make ourselves feel better. Check. I've I've done that. When we want to celebrate good fortune, we buy something. Check. (laughs) on that. When we're bored or think there must be more to life, we buy something. Check. 
done that too. And especially with the internet now, 24-7, I can go on Amazon or any other place. It's easy to do. Now, don't get me wrong. None of this is wrong in and of itself. It's just what we do. We have learned to seek external solutions to signals from our heart and our mind and our soul that something in our life is out of balance. We try to satisfy those signals, which are essentially psychological or spiritual needs, with consumption. So uh, this is not new terrain. I'm sure you all are aware of this. Something is out of balance, and we try to use money to solve that problem. But part of the problem is we don't even really know what money is. And without a clear definition of money, as the authors of Your Money or Your Life note, our handling of this substance is anywhere from inept to insane. And it almost always leaves us incapable of getting what we really want. So what is money? That's a question for you all. What is, just shout, if you got an idea in your head, just shout out. What is money? Power. 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 Security. Security. Choices. Time. Idolatry. Now we're getting in the religious, spiritual language here. The root of all evil. This is good. You're hitting some of the ones on my list. <laughs> any, other, any other one word? Just shout it out. It, value exchange. Okay. This is, this is good. Some of this fits in my list. Some of it's on the edges. The authors suggest a couple of ways, the authors of your money or of your life, that we can understand money. Uh, actually, misunderstand money. First, we can imagine money as security. Somebody said security. Somehow, we believe that money can be a buffer between us and this cold, cruel world. Money, we try to use money to defend against unpleasant emotional states like fear or worry or anxiety, and it doesn't work. It doesn't provide security. We imagine money as power. Someone said power. And it's true. Money can bestow power to do what we want, when we want, where we want. And if we don't want to do it, if we have money, we could pay someone to do it for us. So there is power in money, but one need only think of Gandhi, who freed India from the British not with money at all, but with soul force, with satyagraha, with soul power. So Money as power is a limited definition. Third, we imagine money as social acceptance. This is really just about keeping up with the Joneses. It's about having uh, access to the right circles because of what you own or what you drive or any of those kind of things. But the truth is that acceptance and love comes without dollar signs attached. And fourth, someone said the root of all evil and idolatry. We imagine money as evil. Love of money is the ultimate evil. But really, is money, is this $1 bill or any bill evil in and of itself? I don't think it is. As the authors of Your Money or Your Life point out, all of these definitions identify money as something external to us, something that we pin our hopes on for power or security or fulfillment or even acceptance and personal worth. All of these definitions miss the mark, they argue. And so they offer this as the most real definition of money. And I know there are other definitions, but this is what they offer. They say this comes closest to the mark. 
Money is something we choose to trade our life energy for. Maybe you've heard this before. If you've read the book, you're familiar. But let this sink in. Money is something we choose to trade our life energy for. You could just shorten it to money is life energy. Now, according to the authors, this definition gives us significant information. In many ways, our life energy is more real than money. Life energy, your life, my life, it's tangible. It's finite. It's all we have. It's precious because it is limited and irretrievable. And because our choices about how we use it, how we use our life energy, those express the meaning and purpose of our time here on earth. We trade our life energy, money earned through work, or even inherited, if we've inherited it, we still have to manage it and think about it and worry about it, so life energy is being exchanged there too. We trade our life energy for cars, computers, boats, mortgages, books, lattes, clothes, vacations, all the stuff in our garages and basements and storage units, for haircuts, for chocolate, for college tuition, for therapy, for newer cars, for shoes, for cabins, cottages, food, coffee, so many more things. And hear me on this. This is not about shame or blame or anything like that because none of those exchanges are bad in and of themselves. As a person of faith and as people of faith, what matters is lifting up some questions. And if we are trading our life energy away for these things, life energy that is finite and precious and limited, if we are trading that away with only marginal awareness of the trade we're making and no assessment of whether or not it's a good trade, then I think we're in trouble. If at the end of every two weeks you wonder where the money is gone, take a good hard look, track every penny, find out. That's your life energy slowly being spent and dissipating away. If we are trading our life energy away without considering our deepest values and whether or not our actions are in alignment with those values, we're in trouble. If we are trading our life energy away in an attempt to fill a spiritual hunger with material things and we never feel quite content or fulfilled, then we're in trouble. And perhaps our work is not so much about making a living as it is about making a dying. If we feel that it's necessary to work all the time, that it's been decided that if we lie down or slow down, we might die, then we are sacrificing our lives, our health, our relationship, our sense of joy and wonder to our jobs. If this is the case, and only you know if this is the case in your life, then it is time to wake up. One of the best ways I know how to wake up, one of the best places I can put myself in my imagination, is to imagine that I am nearing the end of my life, that, that you all, all of us, are nearing the end of our lives, and we're, we're looking back. As Maury, from the book Tuesdays with Maury, tells his friend Mitch, 
Everyone knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. <laughs> if we did, he says, we would do things differently. There's a better approach to know you're going to die, to be prepared for it at any time, and that way you can actually be more involved in your life while you're living. So imagine yourself near the end of your life looking back. Look back over your life. It'll give you a chance to reevaluate your relationship with money and time and contentment and work and those in your life. As you imagine yourself near death, the truth that emerges, and as this following story illustrates, is that you cannot take anything with you, including your money. Here's the story. A wealthy man is quite ill and realizes he will die soon. So he calls his three friends, a doctor, a pastor, a lawyer, to his bedside. He says, I am dying. I know people say you can't take it with you, but I think I've found a way. I have prepared three sealed envelopes, each containing $10,000. When I die, I want each of you, when you walk by my casket, to drop it in my casket. <laughs> After the funeral, the three friends come back together, and the pastor says, Oh, I have a confession to make. We needed to repair the church organ, so I took out $2,000 and just dropped in $8,000. The doctor says, well, I need to confess. I took 5000 out for a new clinic I'm starting, so I only put half in. The lawyer says, you know, kind of stands up a little bit, says, my conscience is clear. I did just what our friend asked. I kept my envelope, picked up both of yours, and dropped in a check for the full amount of $30,000. <laughs> It's a silly joke. It's a silly joke, but in the face of death, money is meaningless. Stuff is useless. In fact, at not one memorial service I've been at or have officiated at, has anyone ever been remembered or celebrated for the amount of stuff or the money that they had? Ever. What, what people lift up, you know this is true, what they lift up is the relationships, the way they were touched, the generosity, the time spent with loved ones. Those are the things lifted up. We know this. If we imagine ourselves at the end of our lives looking back, we know what matters, what's truly important is family and friends, time to pursue personal growth and development, to learn an instrument, to write a poem, to read poetry, to have long, deep conversations, to sit quietly to listen to our own deep truth as it emerges. Looking back over your life from that imaginary place, we'll see that what matters is finding the land of enough, our own place of contentment and fulfillment. And by the way, the land of enough is right next to the land of gratitude. They're connected. If you are thankful for what you have, and what's around you, you're probably just a half acre away from the land of enough. Enough, as the Reverend Christine Robinson says, is being able to meet our needs without worry and living a life that involves our values and has some pleasures. She continues, when our pleasures have depth, it is easier to be content with fewer of them. 
like the rich dessert that satisfies in just a few bites, cultivating deep pleasures helps us keep our wants small enough so that our income becomes enough. Thus, money that we give to a grand project of some kind brings the quiet pleasures of generosity long after little baubles or other things that we purchased after that pleasure would have faded. Using our life's energy to provide enough for ourselves and our families and communities, that, says Christine Robinson, can be deeply satisfying. I will warn you, though, that arriving at the land of enough, or at least getting close to the land of enough, is probably the hardest, most difficult spiritual work you'll ever do. Because the grass is always greener somewhere else. This is true in my life. The land of enough is always just beyond the next purchase or after that last hour or week of working 80 hours so the project will be done enough where you can slow down and have time for your family. But friends, our life energy is limited. The candle of our life burns down quickly. There is more to life than work and money, although those are parts of life. Do not confuse doing with being. Our challenge as people of faith is to connect with our deepest values and then align those values with our actions so we can learn to stop sacrificing the great things in life, like spending time with people we love, to the small things in life, like spending an extra hour at work. As the authors of Your Money or Your Life remind us, our real work is to live our values as best we know how, not to change our values so that they align with our actions. With our money and our life, we must ask, is this expenditure of life energy in alignment with my values and life purpose? Is my life whole? Do all the pieces, my job, my expenditures, my relationship, my values, my faith, do they fit together? I cannot answer these questions for you, but I can lift them up. I can invite you to get clear about your own work and vocation and what it is you need to do to thrive and survive. I can invite you to figure out the role of money in your life, what fulfillment, what contentment looks like for you, and I can invite you to step in that direction. I can invite you to get clear about how you value your own life energy. As we wrestle together with these questions, the authors of Your Money or Your Life remind us that our task, and it's a religious task, really, is to retrieve the birthright of knowing ourselves as human beings rather than as human doings or human earnings. You are enough. You are enough. Amen.